Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. The psalmist said, Sorrow endures the night, but joy comes in the morning. Perhaps you've experienced that yourself. You know what it's like to go through a difficult night that seems like it would never, never end. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. You know, it's a sure thing. People will disappoint us. But perhaps the deepest hurt of all comes when we're hurt by someone we trust. Well, Jesus is no stranger to that sting of betrayal. And today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shows us how Jesus responded and, in turn, how we should respond when someone wounds us deeply. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. I've set aside all other topics this week in order to concentrate fully on our resurrected Lord. What could possibly be more important than that, right? Easter Sunday is coming, and it's coming soon. And it's a holiday that, for followers of Christ, changes everything. In today's message, I'm going to tell you a story about the longest night that Jesus endured on our behalf. But before I get started, I'm eager to remind you that time is running out to request an exclusive thank you package from your friends at Pathway to Victory. This shipment will include two of my favorite Easter messages on CD and DVD. But in addition, I've decided to send you a beautiful olive wood cross that was handcrafted in Israel as well. This cross will be a reminder to you of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in your life. When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'll make sure this package is sent to your home right away. My hope is that you'll display the cross in a prominent place in your home or office as a constant reminder of what God has done for you. And maybe you'll use the CDs and DVDs as a way to tell your friends about the power of the cross. We're living in ominous days, but in spite of the darkness, God has shown a great light upon us. And for that reason, we have no reason to fear. May you be encouraged, friends, as you give thanks to God for the power of the cross. We'll say more about this exclusive thank you package later on, but right now let's turn our attention to the gospel according to Luke for our continuing study in Luke chapter 22. I titled today's message, The Longest Night. Today we're going to look at the longest night in Jesus' entire life. A night in which he experienced temptation, betrayal by somebody close to him, and the abandonment by everyone he trusted in. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22 as we talk about Jesus' longest night. Luke chapter 22, look at verse 39. And he came out, that is of the upper room, and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when Jesus arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them, that is the disciples, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. 
he fell down on his face and began to pray saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Let this cup pass from me. What did he mean by that? I think he was asking God to exempt him from the physical suffering of the cross and the spiritual suffering of the cross. You see, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And it was only natural that he would ask for another way to accomplish the Father's will. And that's why he said, Father, if you can, find another way for me to accomplish your mission. Notice verse 43 and verse 44. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I don't understand it. It's a theological conundrum to me. Jesus, the Son, and God the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And yet that night in the garden, there is a struggle between the will of the Son and the will of the Father. I don't understand it. But I know this, when you and I struggle with doing God's will, God understands that because he's experienced it. Jesus went through a real struggle in the garden that night in doing the will of God. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. Jesus struggled with that. But God's will ultimately won. And when Jesus settled that matter in his own heart, he got up with confidence to face the cross. And that set up the stage for the greatest betrayal he would ever experience. Look at verse 47 of Luke 22. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 49, and when those who were around Jesus saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Well, there was one overzealous apostle who didn't wait for the answer. Look at verse 50. And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That certain one John 18 tells us, was Peter. Don't you love Peter? I mean, he was ready to do whatever it took to stand with the Lord, at least at this point. So he took the sword, and he, he wasn't aiming for the ear, trust me. Nobody would aim for the ear. He was aiming for the throat, and this slave probably ducked and ended up losing an ear. The slave was a, a slave of the high priest, Malchus. Now, to see what Jesus' response to that was, hold your place here and turn over to the parallel passage, Matthew 26, verses 52 to 56. Then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, don't read into that more than ought to be read into it. Those who take up the sword, shall perish by the sword. What Jesus is simply saying here is, you're not going to advance the kingdom of God by physical force. 
There is no justification for a Christian jihad, okay? There are other faiths that say, we're going to use the power of the sword to convert people to our way of thinking, not Christianity. It is the power of the Holy Spirit of God that changes people's lives, not physical force. He's simply saying, my purpose is not going to be fulfilled through the use of the sword. He goes on to say, for do you not think that I could appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But then he goes on to say, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Jesus said, Peter, put the sword away. This is part of God's plan for my life. That's what Jesus was saying. And then notice how Matthew 26, verse 56 ends. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It wasn't just Judas who betrayed him. All the disciples left him and fled. And in that word, all, was included one man that you would least expect to turn his back and run. His name was Peter. And Peter, in a few hours' time, would deny the Lord not once, twice, but three times. Turn back to Luke 22 for just a moment. Remember, just a few hours earlier in the upper room, Peter had made this bold declaration. He said in verse 33, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you had denied me three times. You'll deny three times that you even know me. Now, he made that prediction in the upper room. Just an hour or so later in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened? Peter took the sword and cut that guy's ear off. And you were tempted to think, well, maybe Jesus was wrong about this. Maybe Peter was going to be the rock man that Jesus said he was. But the rock man turned to jelly very quickly. Notice verse 54 of Luke 22. And having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. There's a whole sermon in that phrase. Peter was following at a distance. There are a lot of followers of Christ today who profess they're gonna do great things for God, but when the heat starts to be turned up on them for following Jesus, they drop back a little bit. There's a distance between them and the Lord until they see how this is all really going to pan out. That was Peter. As he began to see everything taking place, he drops back. He's still curious, but he drops back. Now, where did they take Jesus from the garden? To the house of the high priest. And Jesus begins at about one o'clock in the morning, a series of six trials before he was crucified eight hours later at 9 a.m., they brought him for the first trial to the high priest's home. Now, the high priest was named Caiaphas. Caiaphas had been uh, preceded. The former high priest was named Annas, and it was Caiaphas' father-in-law who was the high priest before Annas. And so when they went to the home of the high priest, many of us have been there, that home is a palatial home, and it was probably a place where both Annas, the father-in-law, the high priest emeritus, and Caiaphas lived, and their quarters were separated by a courtyard. Now, Luke doesn't record the first trial of Jesus, which was before the father-in-law, Annas. It was a very brief interchange. Uh, Luke picks up with the trial before Caiaphas. Now, Peter was with the others 
out in the courtyard of that high priest home where he could hear everything that was taking place. Now notice the three denials that would take place within these two hours. Verse 55, and after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him, Jesus too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. The first denial. The second denial, an hour or so later perhaps, verse 58. And a little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. Notice here, Peter's not only denying that he knew Jesus, he was denying the disciples as well, that he was part of them. He said, I'm not a part of that group whatsoever. And then the third denial, perhaps 30 minutes or so later in verse 59, somebody else fixes their gaze on Peter and insisted, certainly this man also was with him for he is a Galilean too. Remember, Galileans lived in the north. Jesus was from Galilee. They're now in southern Israel, in Judea. And somebody around that fire says, look at him. He's from Galilee. He must be with Jesus. Now, how did he know that Peter was from Galilee simply by looking at him? When we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, we were a long way from Dallas. And one morning I got up and went to the coffee bar to order some coffee. I asked for my coffee latte. And the girl looked up and smiled and said, how long have you lived in Texas? <laughs> I didn't tell her I was from Texas. Didn't have to. The accent gave me away. And it was the same thing with Peter. The Galileans had a certain accent. Those in the South knew exactly where he was from. And so how did he respond to that? Matthew's account says he began to, quote, curse and swear. Now, I've read that for years, and you have too. And I bet you've had the same thought I did. You probably think that means that Peter responded by just letting out a string of expletives, cursing and swearing. Well, I mean, he was a rough Rugged fisherman, that'd be a normal response, but that's not what the text means, that he cursed and swore. No, he's talking about the fact that he made an oath to God, calling down a curse upon himself if he was lying. Basically, what it says is, Peter said, I am not one of his. If I'm one of his followers, may God strike me dead, the ultimate curse. That's what it means that he was cursing and swearing. He was swearing an oath. May God strike me dead. May God send me to hell if I am not telling the truth that I don't know who he is. That's what you call the ultimate denial. Verse 60 says, before those words had left Peter's mouth, the rooster crowed just as the Lord had predicted. And the Lord who was apparently close by turned around and simply stared at Peter. And those eyes of Jesus, those eyes that Revelation 1 describes as like fire, those eyes of Jesus burned into Peter's heart. And Peter immediately remembered the Lord's prediction 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Verse 62 says, and Peter went out and he wept bitterly, continually. What a night it had been for the Lord in just a few hours, an intense temptation to disobey God, the betrayal by somebody close to him, the abandonment of everyone close to him, including Peter. Obviously, these events are important because they were the preamble to the crucifixion that we'll look at next time. But in these final moments we have today, I want to point out just three simple principles from this passage that I hope will be an encouragement to you when you face temptation, betrayal, abandonment of those close to you. Number one, write this down. Don't be surprised when people disappoint you. Don't be surprised when people disappoint you. You know, Judas' betrayal could have been written off as simply an anomaly. I mean, Judas, I mean, he was not a Christian to begin with. Okay, we'll give him some slack. But then for all of the disciples to abandon him. And then for Peter, the one Jesus had handpicked to be the leaders, that was a hard thing to take. But Jesus never wavered in his faith because his faith was not in people. His ultimate faith was in God. And ours should be as well. Don't put your hope in other people. You're going to be disappointed. Principle number two, strengthen your relationship with God before the battle begins. Strengthen your relationship with God before the battle begins. You know, the baseball player who waits until the World Series to learn how to swing a bat. The soldier who waits until the bullets are firing, flying overhead until he learns how to load a gun. Those men have waited too late. No, the time to prepare is before the contest begins, not in the middle of the contest. Let me press that illustration just a little bit further. I was reading yesterday in Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, this baseball illustration. By the way, it's a great book on discipleship, The Spirit of the Disciplines. But Dallas Willard says, just imagine a teenager who wants to be a star baseball player. So he thinks to himself, how do I become a superb baseball player? Well, I'll watch and emulate the actions of good baseball players. So he watches his favorite baseball player. He, try, he looks at how he swings the bat. He looks at how he slides into home base. And he thinks, I'll just duplicate that when I'm up to bat and when I'm running around the base. So at next Saturday's game, he tries to swing just like his model does. He tries to slide into home like his model player does. Is he successful? No, no. You can't imitate what somebody else does and be successful by what they do during the game. You see, what he fails to understand is the reason that star player plays the way he does is because of the hours he spends away from the game, training. Hours and hours and hours of preparation. Disciplines he goes through saying no to certain privileges in his life so that he becomes a prime athlete. No, the key to success in the game is what you do in preparation away from the game. 
You know, so many times we hear it said, well, if you want to be a good Christian and succeed in temptation and testing in your life, you know, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Try to be like Jesus. Try to do what he did when he was in the garden or when he was in the wilderness with Satan. If you just try to do what Jesus did when he was in the heat of the battle, you're not going to succeed. You see, the secret to Jesus' success is what he did in the hours when he wasn't being tried and tempted. For example, the Bible says he went to the garden of Gethsemane as was his custom. This wasn't the first time he'd been to the garden to pray. Prayer was an integral part of his life. Mark 1 tells us that Jesus got up as a habit in the early morning while it was still dark to go out and pray. He was used to doing that. We saw in Luke's gospel, Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. Every week he was in God's house to be strengthened. If Jesus needed that, how much more do we need that? It's the disciplines Jesus had outside of the game and the battle that made him successful when temptation and testing came. If you want to be successful like Jesus was, it means preparing yourself. Thirdly, failure is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be final. Failure is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be final. Listen to this. Judas failed. The Bible says he went out and he hung himself. And he spent eternity separated from God in hell. Peter also failed in just as serious of a way, denying that he knew the Lord, asking God to strike him dead if he was lying. His denial was just as serious, but Peter confessed his failure. He found God's forgiveness. And within seven weeks, he was standing on those southern steps of the temple in Jerusalem, and he preached the most courageous sermon that had ever been preached at Pentecost, and 3,000 people were converted. And from that moment on, he spent his life following Jesus Christ, regardless of the cross. And at the end of his life, he was crucified upside down. Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord Jesus himself. You and I are going to fail, and we're going to fail miserably at some point in our life. But you can choose how to respond to that failure. You can be like Judas and allow that failure to drive you away from God and be the final word of your life. Or, like Peter, you can confess your failure, find Christ's forgiveness and receive it and allow your failure to drive you into the arms of the God who loves you. Whenever Jesus encountered someone who was lost, his teaching always led to a moment of decision. It was impossible to meet Jesus without responding with either yes or no. My prayer is that you decide, as Peter did, to follow Jesus no matter the cost. As we wrap up today's program, I'd like to share a very personal word with those of you who support Pathway to Victory with your generous gifts. My role could be very lonely were it not for people like you who support us. As your radio pastor, Bible teacher, and friend, I want you to sense my heartfelt gratitude for your financial support. And right now, I'm feeling an extra measure of urgency. Never before in my ministry have I sensed the heaviness, the depravity of our generation. 
and never before have I felt more compelled to present the power of the cross. Truly, our resurrected Lord is our only hope. Would you be willing to stand with me today? Your generous gift to Pathway to Victory will make all the difference. And to say thank you, I'm prepared to send you two of my favorite Easter messages on CD and DVD. In addition to these recordings, I'll also include an exclusive gift from Pathway to Victory. It's a beautiful olive wood cross that was handcrafted in Israel. This is an offer that expires very soon. Even with the many distractions in our nation and world, the message of Easter hasn't changed, nor has the love of God towards you. Thank you for joining with me in ministry by giving generously so that we can share the power of the cross with people in need of our Savior. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you invest in the ministry of Pathway to Victory by giving a generous gift, we'll say thanks by sending you The Power of the Cross, a two-message Easter teaching set from Dr. Robert Jeffress. You'll get that along with a small olive wood cross crafted in the Holy Land. Together, these resources are designed to help you focus on the cross and all that it means in your life today. Call us at 866-999-2965. That's 866-999-2965. Or go online to ptv.org. Thank you for partnering with Pathway to Victory. Your prayers and giving are what fuels our mission to pierce the darkness with the light of God's Word and to proclaim the truth of the gospel by the most effective means possible. And if you'd prefer to send a letter by mail, write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. That's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Join us again next time as we walk step-by-step through the six trials of Jesus. It's a message called Jesus or Barabbas. That's Friday, here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.